I heard a story about uh, two people who died. And one was a cab driver, and one was a, a minister, a preacher. And they both got to heaven at the same time, and St. Peter was standing at the gate, and he had his paper, and so he said, now, uh, who are you? And so I can check, you know, that you should be in here, and that, you know, whatever else I need to know will be on this list. And so the cab driver said, well, I'm Joey from New York. That's like not a good New York accent, but that was my best attempt. And St. Peter said, oh, Joey from New York. Oh, yeah, you're on here. Okay, great. And he said, just hang on. And he opened the thing and pulled out this giant, huge crown with all these jewels on it. And he put it on his head and said, awesome, Joey, there's your crown. And we have an incredible mansion. Here's the keys to your mansion. It's on Gold Street right down on the left-hand side. And it's a huge mansion with a swimming pool and everything else. And Joey was like, oh, yeah, awesome. And he started going down. and, And the reverend was like, oh, okay. And so he walked up and said, Hello, I'm uh, Reverend Joseph from a parish, the, the St. Uh, Paul's Parish, and I've been ministering for 43 years. Uh, am I on the list? And St. Peter said, oh, yeah, you know, you're on the list too. And he went in and he pulled out this little tin crown and he gave it to him. And he said, oh, yeah, you're in the row house on uh, Silver Street on the right-hand side. And he gave him the keys and the minister said, Surely there's some mistake here. Uh, jo- this other guy, Joe, Joseph, Joey, maybe that was the mistake because I can't imagine how that cab driver could get a bigger crown and a, you know, a bigger house than me. And St. Peter said, oh, oh, no, sorry, there's no mistake. Um, we work by results. See, while you preached, people slept. And while Joey drove, people prayed. <laughs> he prayed. Now, that's a funny joke. And, of course, we know that's not how it will be when you get to heaven. St. Peter may or may not be there, but we do know that grace will welcome us in, and Jesus will be there to call our name. However, it struck me that there's something about him saying we work by results. That's like, well, that's weird. Oh, we work by results. Oh. And it actually, it's very similar to something Jesus says in this upper room passage. We're talking about the upper room stuff, and that's uh, it actually goes from John 13 to John 17, and we took John 15 right in the middle, and we're pulling that out, and we're looking at the stuff Jesus is saying. What does he say when he addresses his followers and us in that on that last night before he's betrayed, crucified, and put into the tomb? when they spend that last night together and he prepares them for his death and his resurrection and his coming ascension, what does he say to them? And remember, he washed their feet and he demonstrated something powerful and symbolic. And he said, you should serve one another the way I'm serving you because I'm your master and you're the servant. Do you got it? And they said, yeah, we got it. And then he went and he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. Remember me. And then he took the cup and he said, This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins, for the new covenant. Drink it in remembrance of me. And they said, Okay. (laughs) What do they talk about when they sit around the table and they're eating and they're dipping their food? They're all around that table. What's the rest of the conversation? What does Jesus say? John 15. John 15, verse 8 to 11 is what we're looking at this morning. Last week, I read the whole chapter. So I'd encourage you, if you weren't with us last week, you have some catch-up to do. I won't read the entire chapter again. 
It's a good chapter, though. I'd encourage you to read it. John 15, verses 8 to 11 says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is God's word. My big idea this morning is that being a Christian means our transformation into joyful fruit bearers. Being a Christian means our transformation into joyful fruit bearers. It says bear much fruit. I'm a a soccer coach. I coached Elijah going through his years until he got to the year where they divide and separate into different groups. And then I was no longer able to coach him. And so then I started coaching Gabe and I've been coaching Gabe. I'll be coaching him again this year. And one of the interesting things I noticed about sports that's different from when I was a kid is there's like a competitive reticence with younger kids. And some of it's good and some of it's a bit weird to be honest with you. Uh, we don't keep track of the score at all. There's no score. We're not allowed. The coach is not allowed to keep track of the score. And when the kids bring it up, you just say, oh, that's nice, whatever you don't. There's no focus on score or the score of the game at all. And we don't want to put any pressure on the kids, which is good. There's not that pressure. However, if you ask the kids, they all know what the score is. <laughs> They're keeping track of the score. And any kid on the team who's not keeping track of the score, who doesn't know the score, is usually the kid who's out there picking his nose. <laughs> doesn't even know what we're doing. We played it. Elijah played a tournament that he started last year. It was his first tournament, and he, he was getting ready to go into this tournament. He was really excited. Finally, okay, a tournament, a tournament. And I looked it up, and then I had to go prepare him, and I said, Elijah, I just need you to be prepared that this is not a tournament where they keep track of the score. And he said, what? I said, yeah. No, you just play four games, and that's the tournament. And he was like, well, how do they know who wins the tournament? I said, there is no winner. It's just a tournament. And he was like, what? <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't pressuring him. He was, he was upset. There has to be a point. There has to be a point. There has to be a reward or a motivation or we lose track of why we're doing anything. Why are we here? What is this about? What's the point of this? Are we trying to be the best goody two-shoes out there? Is that our, that's what, that's the, that's the goal. Is that, the, that's what people think. You join the church, well, that's, they're just going to make you into a goody two-shoes. Or the most, uh, nicest doormats around. Those are the Christians. Is that what we're about? Is that what we're after? Jesus says this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. The Westminster Catechism teaches that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And Jesus says that the Father is glorified when we bear much fruit. The Father is glorified when we bear much fruit. There's fruit proof. Fruit is the proof of our discipleship. Jesus tells a story, a parable. It's called the parable of the talents. 
If you haven't heard it, it's in Matthew chapter 25. And it's of a wealthy landowner, and he's going to go away on a holiday. And so he takes three of his servants, and he wants to keep the business rolling. So he takes them, and he gives them some portion of his estate so that they can keep the business rolling while he's away. And the first one, he gives to him five talents. That's like an amount of money. So he says, here, you've got five talents. And to the second one, he said, You've got, I'll give you two talents. And the last one, he said, I'll give you one talent. And I want you to make good use of this, my estate, while I'm away. Keep the business running while I'm gone. And he went off. And then he came back later, and he checked in with them. And he said to the first one, you know, how did you do? I gave you five talents. What happened? The guy said, from your five, I turned it into ten. I doubled it. And the second guy said uh, the same thing. I turned the two into four. I doubled it. And to both of those guys, he said the same thing. He says, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then to the third guy, he says, hey, what, what did you do with your talent? the talent I gave you. And he said, well, I knew you were a hard master. I knew that you're a good business guy. And so I was afraid that I might lose it. And so I buried it in the ground so no one would steal it and that it would be safe. And I have it. It's right here. It's covered in dirt, but it's, it's good. Here it is. And that's him looking for it. Where did I bury it? There? No, over there. And so the guy says, I have your talent back. And the master responds by saying, you wicked, foolish servant. How could you do that? If you knew I was a hard man, why didn't you at least put it in the bank and we would get interest? There'd be something. You did nothing. And he's cast out. There will be evidence. There's something that happens when there's multiplication, when you're moving, things aren't happening. Jesus talks, he curses the withered tree. There's no fruit on it and the tree withers. Right after the parable of the talents, Jesus goes into this thing about the sheep and the goats and separating sheep and goats. And when he does that and he talks about it, a little bit scary when you're reading it, he, he says this, and the, the sheep are like, well, how do we know you? How do we see you? And Jesus says this, for when I was hungry, you, maybe you've heard this passage, when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was in jail, you came and visited me. And they say, when did we see you? And Jesus says, well, when you did to the least of these. There's something that's happening. And to the other one, as he separates them, he says to the other ones, you didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't come visit me. They say, when? Well, when you didn't do it to anyone else around you. You missed it. When you're a part of me, stuff is happening. It happens. And the mission is multiplication. The evidence will show whether you multiplied or whether you buried. Fruit is also the purpose of our existence. In soccer, so I mentioned soccer, we teach basic skills. Our soccer is pretty basic at the level I coach it at. This is why I'm allowed to coach. And um, so, you know, it's like passing and shooting and um, dribbling, and we teach throw-ins and goal kicks and corner kicks. We teach sportsmanship, how to lose well and how to win well and all those things. And we teach defense and tackling. But I can remember when Elijah was five. He's not here, so I can tell the story. When Elijah was five, so he's really little, and it was the first time we put him in soccer. And so at five, kids are like, no one knows what's going on. And so you got a bunch of kids walking around there picking grass. One kid's picking his nose. you got kids chasing each other like they're playing tag. 
That's what they're playing. And then you got another kid who's wrestling people. And, you're, you know, this is like coaching is like, okay, stop. Kick the ball when it comes near you. Kick it. That kind of that direction. Oh, no, you're going the wrong way. But Elijah at five, he got on the field and he watched for a bit. It took him one game. And then he was like, so the purpose of this game is to put the ball into the net and we score goals. And then that's all he would do. And he would score an embarrassing amount of goals because he was running around all these other kids who were not doing anything, you know, and now it's harder to do that because everyone's more, more people are playing. But he knew the purpose of the game right away. We can say it doesn't matter, it's fine, it's just fun, but the soccer has a purpose, and the purpose is still to score goals and win the game at the end of the day. That's the game of soccer. Jesus says we were chosen to bear fruit. He says it in verse 16, a little bit past where we're reading. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Or in Ephesians, Paul says in chapter 2, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Another way to talk about uh, bearing fruit is discipleship. So bearing fruit isn't, you know, it's not, oh, I have lots of apples, so now I'm a, I'm a good Christian, or now I'm a, now I'm a Christian at all. It's, it comes out of connection with Jesus. So, but we do talk about discipleship. One of the authors I've read recently, his name is Jim Putnam, and he wrote a book called Disciple Shift. And it's about his, he's going into all these churches, he was talking to different people, he realized in his own church, if he brought up the word discipleship, hey, what are we aiming at? What are we, as we try to become more mature Christians, what does that mean? And everyone had a different answer for what does that mean? And he realized, this isn't good. If we all have a different answer, we're all aiming in different places. It's like a scattershot. It's like, we're never going to hit the bullseye. And so he, just, he looked in the Bible and he said, okay, I think we could articulate this as a, as a journey we're on, a way of articulating discipleship. What does it look like? How are we trying to grow? What does it mean to bear fruit? And this is what they came up with. So... Their stages of discipleship start at dead. You're dead. That's the, that's the non-stage of discipleship. Before, pre-believer. And the way he got that word is that the Bible talks about that we were dead in our sins before we were born in Christ, before we experienced life in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, don't be offended by that word. That's in Ephesians chapter 2, that's, what, that's how he articulates it. Secondly, when you are born again, or you're born into the Spirit, or born into the family of God, you would be an infant. So a new Christian, a new believer, would be called an infant. And there, um, First Peter talks about that. There's places where it talks about needing mother's milk. You need something really simple because you're a new believer. And new believers need a lot of, they're dependent. They need help, and it, they need to be taught all sorts of things. And then the next stage is that you would be a child. And a child in the kingdom would be like a more immature believer. So someone who's growing and learning, but they're still immature in their faith. And First Thessalonians, Paul talks about um, interacting with his church as there are children, children in the church. And one of the things, the interesting things about children is that a child thinks the world is about them. And so child, people who are at this stage of discipleship talk about me, 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 me a lot. They say, I don't like that song. I don't like that thing. I don't like this. My needs aren't being met. I don't like serving in that area. I want to do this. I want to do that. And it's a lot about them. And they're looking at themselves. And that's a stage that we 
we are in and we grow through, hopefully. It's possible. Thirdly, uh, it would be to be a young adult. And young adults in life are, usually you get to the point of young adult and you realize like, oh, my parents do a lot for me. Oh, they do my laundry and they cook and they do all these things. Wow, I'm like become appreciative of them again. And I start to help out and serve and help and give. And so young adults in the stage of discipleship are people who are serving and giving. They're doing things and they're, you know, they talk like, oh, I learned some things in my devotions or I had this, you know, as in my encounter with God or in prayer. And they're growing. They've taken ownership and they're stepping out on their own. And the last stage of discipleship I found to be the most challenging in the way they articulate it. They don't say mature believer. They call them parents. And the reason is because he would say, unless you are making disciples, you're not a fully mature believer. And so when someone comes and says, "I'm I'm a mature believer, his question to them is, who are you discipling? And if they say, well, no one, he says, well, then you're not a parent. Parents have spiritual children. And I found that to be a very challenging description. And yet, the truth is that we need to be disciple-making disciples. We, there needs to be people coming into the kingdom that we're raising up and we're helping and walking with. And, and that's the, a picture of bearing fruit, is that there is something coming, growing in my life. And it could be the picture of people, that we're discipling others, walking with people. I like that the fruit-bearing vine that has fruit on it, fruit is meant to be shared. It's meant to be eaten. And we do that with others. Bear much fruit. Secondly, I think it's to learn to obey. Um, I heard when I was uh, in university, I heard about this professor, and his name was Dr. Shelby. And I never had him, but I heard about him. He was like, Oh, Dr. Shelby. Oh, you're so lucky if you get Dr. Shelby. Oh, he's such a good professor. Oh, and this and all that. And so I heard about Dr. Shelby. But I also knew about Dr. Shelby because in my Christian school, I was in a Christian school, grade 10, 11, 12, in Victoria. That's where I grew up. And in our school, we had the most beautiful math teacher. And she was single. And so everyone was like, whoa, the single beautiful math teacher. Ooh, we love her. And then Mr. Shelby came and stole her away. So we knew this Shelby guy. And then I went and I was like, Dr. Shelby is the Shelby? He stole the math teacher. Ooh, he is renowned. Like, he's like famous, but, uh, you know, I don't know if I like him or not. And uh, I'm glad in the end for him, but anyway. Um, And they had a brood of boys. They had uh, uh, three or four in the end, uh, really intelligent, energetic boys. Three boys and one girl. Okay. When I was there, it was three boys running all over. And um, I ended up going to his house through some friends. And so we were sitting around the table. And I was like, oh, I'm at the house of Dr. Shelby. And so it was, I don't even know how I ended up there. But, and suddenly he started talking about how he was learning to parent. He said, I've been challenged in my parenting that I need to parent more the way God does. And that God doesn't motivate us through fear of punishment. He motivates us to obey through love. And so he said, I'm trying to do that with my kids. So when, I get, when they get in trouble, he sits them down and he says, now why do we obey? Why do we obey? We obey because you love daddy and because daddy loves you. And at the time, I thought he was loony. I was like, that, never, that will never work. I don't know if it works for you, buddy, but okay, we'll see how that goes. Tell me in the long term how that went. But over time, as I thought about it, it changed actually how I saw the world. 
And then later it did change how I parented my own brood of intelligent and energetic children. You know, anytime we talk about obedience, our cultural back hair goes up. Obedience? What do you mean? And we get all like, ugh, we don't like it. Don't like that word. Don't like the word commandments. All those things scare us, I think. And you don't need to look far in mainstream media or entertainment to know what the big message is that they're sending us. And it's about personal freedom. Your individual personal freedom is what's at stake all the time. I read an article in the newspaper a number of months ago about this lady who got pulled over. She was driving erratically. And the policeman pulled her over, got her out of the car, and she was drunk. And so he put her in his car, impounded her car, and took her back to the station. And at the station, one of the police officers came into the room and said, you need to do this blood alcohol test. And she said, no, I don't want to. And he said, well, you're going to need to do this blood alcohol test. And she said, no, I don't want to. And he said, well, you have to. You're drunk, and we need you to do this. And so she did it. So what I was reading was about the court experience, where she went to court and she argued that because the policeman made her do something she didn't want to do, which was the blood alcohol test, that it should be thrown out of court. And of course, it was. Which is why I remember it still. It was so shocking to me. Our culture, our court system, all around us, we're being told that you should never be made to do anything you don't want to do. Never. Even if it's by a policeman and you're drunk driving. Even if the next time your personal freedom costs you your life or the life of someone else, don't infringe on my personal freedom. That's what we are, the message we receive all the time. Jesus says this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. What commandments? What, did you say commandments? What commandments? This sounds like a conditional statement. Is this a conditional statement? If you keep, that sounds conditional. Uh Uh-oh. I knew it, I knew it. I would sign on the dotted line and then God would pull out his rule book and start beating me with it. I knew it, I knew this would happen. If I don't keep the rules, I'm out. I knew this was the message of Christianity. All that gospel Jesus talk was just to hide the rule book. What's the commandment? Jesus says it. Verse 12, he says, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you that you love one another. In verse 9, he says, as the fathers loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Or in Matthew 22, he explains, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments rest all the law and the prophets. Or one translation says, hang all the law And the prophets. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. He says, that's, if you can do that, that's, you you could focus on that. That's a good one. Mother Teresa says, if we pray, we will believe. If we believe, we will love. And if we love, we will serve. If we love, we'll serve. If we love, we'll obey. 
If we love, there's going to be fruit. It's going to come in our lives, evidence. So how do we grow in our abiding love? Again, Jim Putnam talks about four spheres. He talks about relationships. And by putting the relationship with Jesus in the center, he just spent several verses saying, abide, 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 abide. You can't bear fruit apart from me. You need me. We, we need to be together, connected. And then he says this. So the picture is we have relationships in different areas of our lives. So the home circle would be relationships you have in, at, at home. Maybe your spouse, maybe your relationship with a father or mother. You have um, children, maybe. maybe. You have financial relationships and obligations. Maybe if you're single, there's singleness relationships you have that still are part of your home life, roommates or whoever. And then there's another sphere, the sphere of the world. And in the relationships with the world, you might be an employee or an employer. You might have business contacts or people you work with. You have ethical relationships and obligations. You have hobbies, things you do and you spend your time doing at the gym or wherever you go. Fishing, people are talking about fishing today. Uh, Whatever it is. And you have the community. Maybe you're involved in the community. You have relationships in the community. And then the third sphere is the church. You have relationships at church with people. In the church, there's positions. Some people are leaders and some people are doing different uh, jobs and uh, service um, places. You have giftings and abilities. You are loving people, working through what does that mean? What does that look like? We have conflict in the church that we work through and learn through in relationships. But this is what Jim says. Jesus has to be in the center, touching all of these places. You can't have one of these spheres that Jesus isn't a part of. Oh, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I don't really talk about Jesus. Jesus doesn't really affect my work, my, my life out in the world. You know, I got, I got work, John, and then I got church, John, got home, John. Jesus has to be in the middle. This is how we grow in abiding love is Jesus is the center. Jesus is transforming all of these relationships Because he's the center of my life. And so he brings change. He changes how I interact with people and what I do. None of that's going to be natural. If you look around, oh, let's look and see who else is doing this. No one out there is going to be doing that. It won't be happening around you because community and culture are clashing. Because you have individual rights and freedoms that clash against community. Community is different. It's about working through things. It's about love and sacrifice. It's about um, the greater good. And it's about brothers and sisters thinking about one another. It's about time together and caring for one another and serving one another. And as I talk about that, I should mention small groups in the church. You can't have that by coming on a Sunday morning to a gathering. You don't get that in a big group. You get that in a small group. We call our groups community groups for that reason. We're trying to build community. We're trying to encourage those very things that we would know and care for one another. We'd be challenging each other, walking together. And what does it mean to be be obedient in our lives with God? And we're gathering and we're scattering. And the last one is full joy, that we would experience full joy. There was a preacher who was, all my jokes are preaching jokes today. The preacher's the butt of the joke. 
and there was a preacher who loved golf, and he was an avid golfer, and it was one beautiful Sunday morning, and he woke up, and it was a beautiful, sunny, warm, one of the last warm days of fall. And he thought, oh, the wrestle was in his heart. Oh, I just really don't want to go preach or to go to the gathering. So he called his associate pastor and he said, hey, I'm feeling really <laughs> sick today and I just can't make it. I can't get out of bed. And the guy, other guy said, oh yeah, no problem. I'll take care of it for you. And so he was like, okay. <laughs> and he went and got his golf stuff, put it in the car, got dressed, got in his car. And then he was like, oh. So he drove like an hour away to a golf course where he wouldn't run into anyone he knew. And he got out on the golf green and, you know, put his thing in and had all his stuff ready. And just then an an angel is watching from heaven and the angel's like, oh, this guy needs to be punished. God, come look at this. Do you see this guy? You you know about him, right? God says, "Mm mm-hmm. He says, well, like, he should be punished for this. He's like totally lying and look at him. And God says, "Mm mm-hmm. And then the guy's like, lines up, reaches back, and then just the most effortless swing. A 350-yarder, right in the hole. It was a hole-in-one. The guy's like, oh. And the angel looks down and says, what? I thought you were going to punish him. What is this? And God says, think about it. Who can he tell? (laughs) Now, (laughs) again, we shouldn't get our theology from jokes. So God isn't vindictively up in heaven punishing people like that, I don't think. However, the truth holds that often what we think is going to bring us joy doesn't. What we think is going to make us happy doesn't. You know what? We have a dearth of joy in the world. People are struggling. You, I talk to people. You talk to people. They're not happy. They're struggling. And we're, I'm not talking about full joy. I'm talking about like, I don't even have half joy. I mean, my joy tank's at a quarter or lower. It's on empty. And every time I put some joy in that tank, it's gone. Where does the joy go? I, I don't have full joy. My, full jo- my, my joy tank's never full. We struggle with this. And I think it's in a large part due to where we're going to get joy. Where we're going to find it. I'm reading to my kids I hate saying things like this in front of a church gathering, but I'm reading to my kids the Lord of the Rings. So you're like, the older ones. Yeah, just the older ones. The three older ones. And so we're reading through Lord of the Rings. It's a good story. So there's the movies and then there's the story. So we read through, already we finished the first one. I mean, it took us like a year, but okay. So we read through the first one. We're in the second one in the two towers. And we just read the defeat of Saruman. And so he's, one of the, he's in one of the two towers of the title of the story. And he has an army and his army goes out and they fight against the good guys and they are overcome. The good guys win. And these ants go and they destroy and it's all flooded. And so Saruman's stuck up in his tower. He's totally defeated. He was a wizard on the good side and then he went over to the bad side. And as they go to confront him in his tower, Gandalf, one of the good guys, says... Be careful because he's still very deceptive. His tongue is very convincing. It's the, one of the powers he still has. And so as they go and they, he's up in the tower and they all go there and they know King of Rohan and Gandalf and all these, the hobbits and everyone's there. And they, Saruman pokes his head out of the tower and then he starts talking. And 
as he talks, everyone starts feeling this feeling like they've never heard anything so beautiful. And they are become convinced the more he talks that everything he says is wise and just and right. And as Saruman talks, he, it comes to the knife edge that they almost surrender to him. He's defeated. His armies are destroyed. He's got nothing left. And they stand there and they almost surrender to him, even though they're the victorious army. It reminds me of someone else I know. Another defeated foe who has a silver tongue and lies and lies and lies about where we're going to find joy, what's going to make us happy. We've bought the counterfeits. We've believed the lies in different ways. We believed that the commands of God were to reduce our lives, to steal our freedom and our joy. We've believed that. And you know what? Some of us who've turned to alcohol or sexual relationships or to entertainment or to pornography or sports recognition or public achievement or religious activity have found that the pleasure you experience turns to dust in your mouth in a moment. And then it's gone. Everyone loves me. Oh, it's gone. It's a lie. And Jesus comes and he says, I, my promise is for you to have abundant life and full joy. Abundant life and full joy. Jesus says that's his desire. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, if I picture myself as a disciple sitting in that room and we're eating, and Jesus is saying, abide in me, abide in me, and, you know, joy and love and all this stuff. And then Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I'd be like, oh, what things? These things? What things? I wasn't taking notes. I, was, I just had my mouth full. I missed the things. What things? Was anyone listening? Did anyone take notes? John, you're, okay, good. You write that down. Good. Because I want to know what things Jesus means. What things you just look back? Abide. You can't bear fruit apart from me, Jesus says. Stay connected. Build your home in the presence. Bear fruit. It's what you were made to do. God is love. Abide in love. Love one another. Obey from love. Abide so your joy will be complete. Frederick Buckner says, Purpose is the place where your deep gladness meets the world's need. And I think he joins Jesus in saying there's something you are meant to do, something you're made to do. And the world is poorer and weaker and lesser if you don't do it. And the church is poorer and weaker and lesser if you're not doing it. And you are poorer and lesser and weaker if you're not doing the thing you were made to do. Deep gladness, full joy. That's what's on the line. Full joy. You say, ah, take it or leave it, I don't know. Full joy, that's what's on the line. That's, that's, that's what the stakes are. And the liar who duped us into sin and death, who longs for our destruction, says, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is your individual happiness, your individual freedoms, real and perceived. You deserve to be happy. You know how many times I've heard that? Oh, you deserve to be happy. Oh, you deserve to be happy. 
you deserve to be happy. Do whatever makes you happy. That's what the liar says. The love who gave himself for our redemption, our savior says, we'll experience joy as we bear fruit. We'll experience joy as we obey and we abide in the presence. We'll experience joy as we love one another. Sacrifice and service, full joy, Jesus' joy. That's the promise. So being a Christian means our transformation into joyful fruit bearers. You and I were made, we were chosen to bear much fruit. To bear much fruit. Thankfully, Jesus says the the gardener comes and prunes trees and he's working in us. He's making us to be more and more fruitful over time. And we become fruit bearers by obediently abiding in love. By obeying that command, we're going to love. We're going to live in love. We're going to make our homes in love. And only here do we find full joy. Jesus' joy. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you, um, you came and found us. We didn't find you. You said you chose us. And uh, if I think about myself standing in a line of people, that the idea that you would pick me out and choose me, that you would pick us out and choose us, you'd say, I chose you. I love you. We didn't do anything. We weren't awesome fruit bearers. I wasn't a great tree. I was rotten in my core, and you came and you chose me, and you transformed me. And I thank you that your promise is that you come and you bring transformation in our lives. That when you come and you live in us, you don't just keep things as they were. Things change. And that you, your promise is that you bear fruit in our lives. When you're the center, you bear fruit. When we abide in you, you bear fruit. We bear fruit to bring glory to God. Lord, I pray that as we do that, as we, as we step in, as we say, Lord, we want to please you. We want to follow you with all of our hearts. Would you help us to do that, that we would find joy, real and lasting joy in your presence. I thank you that you're the only source of joy, lasting joy that I know about. And so we want to come to you and ask you for more of it. Thank you that you're so gracious and loving that you come every time. Amen.